Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is January the 9th, 2017, and this is episode 1927 of the Survival Podcast. And we've got a good one for you today because it's, well, you wrote the show. You guys did this show. You made it happen because... This is the listener feedback show. Therefore, listeners are in control of today's show. The way you uh, get material on a show like this is you send me an email. You send it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And in the subject line, make sure you put the letters, like the real word, all caps is best, TSPC. TSPC, and then question for Jack, article Jack, comment for Jack, Jack, you suck. I don't care what you put, but if you put TSPC in there, I'll find it even if it ends up in the spam filter. What are we going to talk about today? Well, I have a, uh, this actually didn't come as an email, it was a comment on the blog I found interesting. Automation is hitting jobs in the solar industry, and, and pretty hard it sounds like. Uh, can the U.S. ever have a good relationship with Russia, a listener asks, based on the uh, the news, I mean fake news that's on the TV right now. And uh, thoughts for uh, on salt for snow and ice and how it affects your soil. Something most people don't think about, and maybe we don't need to think about it as much as we might think we do. It, it all depends. Uh, thoughts on the 6.5 Grendel, right, which is the 6.5 millimeter cartridge for the AR platform, the AR-15 platform, that is. It's the little brother, I guess you'd say, of the 6.5 Creedmoor. I'll talk to you about that a bit today because someone wants to know about it. Thoughts on building wealth the smart way from a guy that uh, the person that sent me the email said, I think he listens to your show. I don't think he does. I think these are just the rules for actually building both the smart way. Uh, next, a term limit amendment bill has been introduced. A term limit bill for the Congress clowns, limiting senators and congressmen to, uh, I believe it's four terms for Congress clowns and uh, uh, two terms for senators, uh, something like that. It might be f six terms for Congress clowns, I'm not sure, but uh, they're all clowns. We'll talk about that, and there's something in that amendment that's, well, it's interesting. You heard about it here first. Um, we have a listener with just a report, prepping pays off in a big way for him in an everyday disaster. We have a question about balancing prepping with minimalism. Thoughts on organizing TSP-style events. The guy wanted me to do a whole show on this, and I don't really think it makes a whole show, but it makes an interesting five to ten minute piece on, you know, what goes into organizing our events, and if you're thinking about doing it, you know, what do you need to consider? And then a question about vermicomposting under quail cages, and what problems there might be there, and how might we avoid them? All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Mentis Forensic Psychiatry. They perform criminal and civil forensic psychiatric examinations, including fitness to proceed to trial or fitness for duty, 
Dr. Nicole Durio is a is licensed to practice medicine in New Jersey and is a qualified expert witness. You can check out her listing at the TSP Business Directory. Uh, Dr. Dorio also offers clinical services. Mentis Forensic Psychiatry. You can learn more at tspbiz.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1927. Because the episode is 1927, Alex has three for us today. We have Germany's Black Friday. We have, let's hear it from the imbeciles, our Supreme Court, and Fly Me to the Moon, or Paris. Notable births. Pope Benedict XVI, living, um, is, is born this year. Robert Bork, a Supreme Court nomination will be rejected so viciously that Bork will become a verb. Cesar Chavez, co-founder of the United Farm Workers Union. Cisse Puede, my father loved this guy, me less so. And in entertainment, Robert Landlum, author of the Jason Bourne trilogy, is born this year. Peter Falk, Grandpa and the Princess Bride and the Bumbling Defective, uh, Detective Columbo. And Pat Paulson, comedian running for president, for president with the slogan, just common, ordinary, simple savior of America's destiny. In other news, airplanes are first used to dust crops. Insecticide is sprayed on the forests of Canada. Mm -hmm. Yay. The iron lung is developed. It will save the lives of polio victims and respiratory failure. It will also be the reason Dark Vader's breath sounds like that. And Stuart Chase meets Stalin. So what? Chase will be the designer of FDR's New Deal to save America from godless socialism by using socialism light, fewer dead people, more power for politicians. The one we're going to read today is, let's hear from the imbeciles, our Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has ruled 8 to 1 that it is constitutional to sterilize its citizens for the good of our nation. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. writes a majority opinion. He is a Boston Brahmin, which means he is the elite of the elites. There is an old Boston joke that says, The Lowells talk only to Cabots, and Cabots talk only to God. Holmes is descended from the Cabots, and while he enjoys a reputation as a fair-minded liberal, he is a confirmed eugenicist. I think most liberals are eugenicists, or most, I, that's not fair. I think most eugenicists are liberals. Let's put it that way. I think that's more fair. He thunders from the bench his famous quote on eugenics. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. He is referring to Carrie Buck, her mother, and Carrie's baby. Exactly how science determined that a six-month-old baby was an imbecile is a mystery, but science says so, so it must be true. And Carrie's defense lawyer is part of the charade. So it is remarkable that Holmes says with a straight face, quote, There can be no doubt that so far as procedure is concerned, the rights of the patient are most carefully considered. End quote. It is done. Carrie Buck will give birth no more. Seventy-five years later. Let's just say that again so it sinks into everybody's head, because we're in 1927. Seventy-five years later, Virginia finally apologized for forcibly sterilizing 7,450 unfit people between 1927 and what, like 1950 or something after? No, 1979. Between 1927 and 1979. The only state to sterilize more was California. Just let it sink in. The rights of the innocent were ignored for the greater good of the master race, even after Hitler's atrocities were revealed. Not long ago, the Fabian Society of Virginia Ironside advocated killing handicapped babies in their cribs. Planned Parenthood began as a means to reduce the black population. By the way, if you were ever told that as propaganda, it is not. It is the absolute truth. Planned Parenthood was founded to control the black population. Now it's chopping up aborted babies for body parts and science, you see, science is pure, true, and good. You don't question science. P 
People complain about religious leaders being too certain. They know what's good for you. But you've never met anyone that is more certain than a scientist. Frankly, scientists must be this way, so don't be too harsh on them. But when they want to impose their will on me for the greater good, that's when I get nervous. Um, I actually don't think scientists need to be that way. I think scientists should be the first people to say, this is what we think based on the evidence that we have at this time, but we could be wrong. Instead, we hear things like, the science is settled, and we hear things like, we should equate, what? Guys, you know, we should equate climate change deniers with Holocaust designers. Deniers. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's the same thing over and over again. What we have done is, in secularism, it, it, the belief is that you should turn away from false beliefs, false deities, or even real deities. If You, you can be a secularist and a religious person because you have your daily life that you live and you, you take your guidance from your faith, but then you make decisions in the concrete world based on concrete things. But what has happened is this: the secularist human movement has morphed over time into, and this is way back here, this was already the case, into just taking out the religious God and replacing it with the God of science. And that can lead nowhere but to bad places because the problem is once science says something, you're supposed to accept it, even though the entire purpose of science is to always challenge what we think we know. To always challenge what we think we know. But, hey, you know... Just the science is settled. Just believe everything that you're told, even though every it seems like every new momentous scientific discovery disproves a previously believed theory that was we were told was factual. If you if you think about it, every single time something really big comes out, it's disproving something that we've been believing and told to believe and taught to believe and trained to believe and compelled to believe, sometimes for decades or even a century. Just my thoughts. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show. Um, like I said, I, I think this this first one actually came to me not from the uh, the email, but from the website itself. Just sometimes I see a comment on our website, and I think to myself, "Self, you should bring that into the show." And this one comes from a person I probably do that with as, as much as anyone, if not maybe the most. Uh, she calls herself Texmom, T-X-M-O-M, on the uh, on the blog. And she has some pretty cool kids doing some pretty cool things. I've, I've learned over the years from listening to her comments. But uh, she says, solar panels. One son who works for a solar company was going to ship me some panels from their old plant, which they were giving away. But couldn't find a good way to ship them economically. Told me I'd be better off to order new ones when I'm ready. They're getting so cheap, unless you're shipping them as part of like a freight dealer or something like that. It, 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 you're better off buying new ones than getting free ones, apparently. That's interesting. I'd like to see the numbers on that, but that's that's interesting. Um, he develops machines which automate more of the process. The company laid off 30% of their engineers and other employees not too long ago, but felt his job was safe as he has saved the company millions so far with his inventions, thinking he's underpaid. Others are working on this, too. Things are changing so fast. Better ways to make with better ways to make with less employees, more automation. That some machines become obsolete by the time they are manufactured. Yeah, absolutely, and I think what if, one thing to understand here is that we're talking about people losing their jobs to automation. They probably have engineering degrees and are in an industry which is experiencing phenomenal growth. 
You can say whatever you want about solar, and you know I have my opinions, and Stephen Harris has his, which are a little bit more bleak than even mine. But my belief is right now that, that solar is, is best suited for places where you can't get anything else. It, it's for independence. It's for freedom. It's not for saving money. Uh, but that's changing. And, and I don't care if you even save money. If I can spend about the same money and then have no need of the grid, and if I could run an air conditioner for a house my size with it and all, well, then we're starting to get somewhere. And then we're starting to get somewhere where I would make the personal investment. But no matter what you feel about solar, the growth is phenomenal. It was something last year like 117%. Now, it's the tiniest sliver there is of the U.S. energy economy, uh, making up about 1%, 1 to 2%, depending on how you do the numbers, of the total energy produced in America, and right around 1% of the energy produced by utilities in America. 1%. So when you're getting power to your house, when you amalgamate it across the whole country right now, about 1% of that power that comes out of that light comes from a solar panel. But still, when you have more than, more than triple-digit growth, multiple years in a row for production, installation, and power generation, You would think if you're an engineer, now, getting into that market since it's relatively small as an engineer might be difficult because is growth, you know, it's growing, but yet your, your staff can maybe handle the growth. You don't have to double your staff because your, your business doubled, not your engineering staff, right? But, but you'd be pretty stable if you already had the job and you were good at it. But 30% of the people that work for this one company, based on the inventions and, 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 and integrations of the, this lady's son and maybe some of his coworkers are gone. Gone. Now, now take that industry wide. Now, if you can do that in solar, why can't you do it in natural gas? And the answer is there's no reason you can't. I, I, I'm, I, I am really being the Pied Piper here or whatever you want to call it with this automation thing. I'm, I'm screaming it from the rooftops. I cover at least a little bit about it every week so you don't forget about it. I don't have the overriding solution for what is going to be the thing that helps you as we see an economy transform in ways we can't even imagine yet. But what I do know is if your eyes are open and you're paying attention and you're thinking about what you can do that's unique to you, you'll be in a good position to take advantage of a lot of this. Because it is going to come, and it's going to come like thundering horses. It's going to seem to be little things like this. Oh, there's you know, 30% of people. Well, they only have you know, 50 engineers, so 30%. Gee, that's, that's not that many people. It's oh, Come on now. You know, that's like 15 people. Those 15 people could find a job somewhere else. But see, what happens is there's 15 people here, and the bigger company is 150 people. And this company over here, which is much bigger, it's 1,500 people. And then they're all, like, see, this is something else people I don't think get. These waves are going to go through specific industries, like, simultaneously. So once one solar energy company starts using these methodologies, and even some of it might be proprietary and developed and patented by the, you know, the programmer or developer or whatever, the other companies are going to figure out different ways to do it. Because now they have to. So if solar company A is doing this, and they're able to drive the market rate down on a delivered solution. Solar company B either adapts to that or fails. That's how the free market works. So it has to adapt. So 
you'll see people decimated out of individual industries or two or three industries in a fail swoop of over, like, let's say, six months to 36 months as these technologies roll out. And then eventually they'll get, like, a momentum up where people start realizing you can do this anywhere. And, and I, I mention this from time to time, but when I was working with Neil Franklin, one of our companies was called Syrian. And Syrian was an optimization company. And what actually made the product hard to sell, and it was in some ways, we would get it into companies, but we'd get a limited role because they would they figured out really quick what it would do. It would it would create a position where you could lay off 300 to 500 very high-paid engineers from a company like AT&T or T-Mobile or Verizon like that. If they let it if they let it do what it was and it did a better job. Well, you're trying to sell it to the people who you're going to replace. But as you make inroads into it, you begin to affect the market where the market then has to respond to it. And when we, we sat down with the engineers that wrote the self-learning mathematical algorithms that we used to do all this predictive analysis, and basically it was artificial intelligence, self-learning algorithms that were actually able to go out and do things like we had one provider who we were able to tell them that their network in New York City was going to fall over in six months. It was just going to fail. And they didn't believe it. And they had all their guys look at it, and they didn't believe it. About 90 days later, so halfway to the, to the point we'd already said it was going to happen, the reality hits them. Holy crap, this is going to happen. What the hell do we do about this? How do we handle this? So they call, call us back up and say, can you fix it? And we're like, yeah, yeah, but it's going to cost a little more money now because there's certain things we could have done to defer some things that now we just have to do. So we helped guide them and help them get it fixed. And, you know, that worked. So at that point, we became very much ingratiated by, by this particular uh, carrier, but still held back from doing what we really could do for them. Because, again, I mean, you're talking, when I say high-paid engineers, I'm talking people making $200,000 to $350,000 or more a year. Some of the top ones may be closer to half a million. Gone. Job doesn't exist anymore. Don't need you. But when we sat down with our with our people and said, well, where else could we do this? They said, airline industry, medical industry, wherever. Anything that uses logistics and planning to control deployment and CapEx and inventory control, anything. Like this this technology does it it's agnostic to what it's what it's what it's working with. It has to be tuned. It has to. We need data inputs, so we have to have a starting point for it. We need the the data that the the provider has, no matter what they're providing, and we need parameters to build around it. But once we have that, we can we can determine anything. It's the same, and that's what Amazon does. That's why they can do two day shipping and less, because they actually know what's going to sell before it sells. Not every item, but enough to have stuff strategically located in their remote warehouses. They're not even remote anymore. These giant warehouses all over the country. They actually run their inventory this way. Instead of putting things alphabetically or by... Pro they know like there's going to be you know, uh, probably a thousand of these things sold this month and so out of this warehouse. It's one of the, so it's all up front. And, and the, so instead of being like a, a grocery store in an Amazon warehouse, we're like, okay, here's all your, your meat. Here's all your dairy, here's your vegetables, here's your dry goods. You could have a, a, a bug assault fly shooter with salt sitting next to a, a, a can of crab bisque. And they're right more often than they're wrong, which is why it works. And every time they are wrong, 
The algorithms are learning, adapting, and adjusting. That's all being fed into the robots that move inventory around. And as, as we start to build more and more self-learning algorithms into the robot itself, the robot itself becomes more efficient than a human being, even if it can't quite make the logical leaps that a human can. First of all, because it doesn't question anything. It just does what it's told or what it's supposed to do. But second of all, because it doesn't need a break. It doesn't get bored. It doesn't make mistakes. The technology driving it can make a mistake, but if the technology says put fingers on this thing, grab, pull back, stick in this bin, then it will grab that thing. It won't, you know, throw two in there by accident because it's tired, because it had an argument with its wife or its husband that morning. And, and all of this is coming in a way that is going to be very difficult for people to even comprehend as it begins to happen. Keep that in mind as you, 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 know, you plan for your future. And again, I'm not telling you to run like Chicken Little from this. This is not you know, my version of, of, of the world ending. I think there's going to be incredible opportunity here, but it's going to be a painful transition. And, and what I want you to do more than anything else is to keep your eyes wide open and be adaptable and always be asking yourself the question instead of, I wish I could, how can I? That, that, that Those types of things are how you're going to adapt to this. Where is the opportunity? Because of this, this negative thing happened, how can I address that in a way that helps people? All right, next up, I have a question from a listener named Tom. Tom says, Jack, I've been listening to the talking heads on TV quite a bit lately. We'll stop that. Uh, no, I understand. Like you, Knowing what's going on is more important than the conclusions they draw from it. So we do have to pay attention once in a while anyway. Anyway, he continues, uh, what they're saying is that President Donald Trump is in for a, a real awakening when he takes office with the relationship with Russia because past presidents, specifically Bush and Obama, have come in with an intention of a good relationship with Russia, and it's always, they've always been let down by Russia. Do you think the United States could ever have a quote-unquote good relationship with Russia? Um, I think that depends on how you define good relationship. And I think one of the reasons that we think we can't have good relations with Russia, or we, we say that we don't, is, is first of all short-term memory. So in, in the 1980s and late 70s, I remember crawling under my desk for nuclear war drills. And if you're not as old as me, you probably never had that experience. I remember, I think it was around 82 or 83, There was a TV, uh, TV miniseries, like a two-part miniseries called The Day After, that featured global thermal nuclear war. And it was all we could talk about in school the next day after. And we, 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 I remember kids realizing, hey, wait a minute, that little bit of wording at the end of the second episode where everything was just destroyed was an actual nuclear disaster. Things would be far worse than this. This would be best case. This is a limited stripe type thing. So I, I, I think as long as we don't have this continued saber-rattling on our side, trying to escalate things with Russia and going back to those days, that we have a much better relationship with Russia than we had with, and I know it was the Soviet Union. I was around, guys. I remember when the globe changed, okay? But the heart of the Soviet Union was Russia, right? So I, 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 I think the problem we end up with is, How do we define a good relationship? And what is our role in that relationship if it's to be good? So here, here's what I mean by that. Imagine that you had a acquaintance, and that acquaintance broke down into uh, an adversarial relationship where you and this other individual didn't fight, but you were near to the point of fighting all the time. 
you had you you agreed on almost nothing and you actually took sides in like acquaintances fights so like uh Bill and Sam are fighting and you and this other guy aren't fighting but you're like backing Bill and he's backing Sam and you, you did that for for decades and eventually you realize this is not a good thing and you come to your senses and both sides start to realize there's actually a lot of things that they do agree on And you come to this understanding that, you know, we don't completely agree, but we don't have to. You have your world, I have your sphere of influence, I have mine, and, and we can be at peace with each other, and we can stop this proxy fighting with each other, we can stop this animosity, and we can we can have this 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 better relationship. And then you say to this other person who who, who has come to that agreement with you, except that I, I always want you to do what I say you should be doing, or you're wrong. What are the odds of that that uh, that level of uh, reconciliation working out? And the odds are very low. Imagine if it was you. Like, well, yeah, we want to be friends and all, but uh, anything that you do that we say you shouldn't be doing, we consider an act of aggression, even if it has nothing to do with us. A, a, a classic point would be all of this this hoopla over Russia occupying the Crimean Peninsula uh, and taking it away from the Ukraine. Okay, well, here's the truth. The Crimean Peninsula became part of Russia again through referendum, which means it was voted on by the Crimean people, first of all. Second of all, how did the Crimean Peninsula become part of the Ukraine? Hmm, should we play Jeopardy music here? It's not complicated. Khrushchev gave it to the Ukraine because he was from the Ukraine and he liked it there. So the, the, the Crimea wasn't historically part of Ukraine. Crimea was historically part of Russia. And if you if you go to Crimea today, and you ask Crimean people if they're happy about being part of Russia, they'll tell you yes. And there's no occupation. There's no soldiers in the streets. There was no landing of amphibian craft and tanks rolling through the streets. That's not how. But we hear, oh, he's a thug, and Vladimir Putin's a thug, and he took Crimea. Well, wait a minute. The people of Crimea made a decision to be part of Russia versus the Ukraine. There are people still living in Crimea who were children at the time that their that their territory was given to another state. Think of it like this. Think of it as um, the United States, uh, uh, a person takes over the United States and gives Arkansas to Texas. And then 50 years later, the United States breaks up into smaller territories. And one of the territories that leaves is Texas. And Arkansas says, we were never part of Texas. We don't want to be part of Texas. We want to be part of what's remaining of the United States. So, you know, California can do its thing, Texas can do its thing, and uh, Florida can do its thing, and the rest of this is still a, a, a membership state. Now, you could debate whether or not this should be, but that's what the people of Arkansas want. And so they they vote for this, and the United States takes them back, And Texas bitches, but they don't really do anything. They just bitch about it. And then Australia shows up and says, hey, you jackasses here in the United States, you can't do that. Give Arkansas back to Texas. That's what's going on there. Now, this doesn't mean I think that, that Vladimir Putin is a human unicorn and farts rainbows. No. But he, he's nowhere near the villain. And that's the thing. Every country... That our nation sees as an adversary, you notice that their leader is always a dictator, a tyrant, a thug. Right? They, 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 always. 
Oh, now there's nations where you could use those 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 terms and be quiet, and you could use those about any modern nations uh, leaders. But if we're going to talk about it from a standpoint of judging them against each other, okay, then Vladimir Putin is not a thug. If we're going to compare him to a lot of other leaders in this world, like the leaders of Iran, that will that will beat a woman for not wearing her bright. That's thuggery. Or in Saudi Arabia, that will execute somebody for being gay. And then we have better relations, I think, with Saudi Arabia than we do with Russia. And we call Putin a thug. So, can we have a good relationship with Russia? If we accept Russia as a modern nation with its own rights and its own interests, and we say unless they're attacking an ally of ours... Or unless they're attacking us, what they do is their business, and what we do is our business, sure. The question is, will we? Because Obama didn't do that, and Bush didn't do that. And frankly, Clinton didn't do that. Though, to be fair, Bill Clinton probably did a better job than any modern president of doing that, with, with Russia alone. It, 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 it's, it's incumbent upon us to realize that we don't get to tell the whole world what to do. And, and, and there are nations out there like Russia who are big enough and have enough influence to tell us, yeah, you don't. But that, that's how I see this adversarial relationship with Russia right now. It's not that they're the greatest people on the planet or anything, but trust me, there's nations that are opposed a hell of a lot bigger of a threat to us than the Russian nation has no qualms with the United States until we start doing stupid shit. If you notice, Putin, when Obama threw our diplomat, the Russian diplomats out, said, we're not going to respond to this. We're going to deal with the next administration. And the Politburo is like on his ass. Like, you have to, do, you have to, it's protocol. He's like, no, we're not going to do that. That's a very smart move. It's a very smart move. Now, will Trump do a good job? I have no idea. I'm not, I'm not rooting, or, you know, I'm not rooting against it because I, I want us to have good relationships with Russia. I really do. Russia's into propaganda. This nation invented propaganda. We're the biggest propaganda machine. Russia's behind fake news. No, people that want to sell advertisements of chicks with their, with their tits hanging out uh, for, for a quarter a click are behind most of the fake news sites. If you go look at all these the fake news sites, the parody sites, things like that, they all have the same freaking groupings of advertisements on them. And it's the same for the hucksters in the natural health industry. They all have the same advertising. Freaking Yahoo has the same advertising. So that's what's... Fake news is about... It, it's less about propaganda, more about... It's clickbait. Can I get you here so I can make some money? And frankly, most of the, the, the legitimately fake news sites, if you don't know it's fake, you've been had. And I've been gotten once or twice by one, but when you dig into it, you're like, oh, this is bull. And 90% of the time, you know it's bull. And if you want fake news, look at you know, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. Right? These are fake news sites because they purport themselves to be fair and honest and, 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 and impartial and telling you the facts. A fake news site never claims to be a real news site. It is, it's like, it, it, you know, nobody bitches about the onion because everybody knows the onion. Right? But when, when, when you're on a site that you don't know, all of a sudden, oh, they've permitted some heresy against you. No. Yeah, I, I think we can have good relationships with Russia, but it's up to us to be a good partner in that relationship. And up to now, 
Russia has been less adversarial than us. And the, the big, the big hot point right now, of course, is Syria. Well, if I was Putin, I would have, I would be doing the exact same thing with Syria. I don't want the so-called moderate, uh, extremists taking over Syria. I don't want one of the last secular governments in the Middle East to fall, even if I don't like the Assad regime. At least they're not going to have a theocracy. At least they're not going to be throwing people off buildings and setting them on frickin' fire. That's all he says. No, that's, that's, that's shit that's happening in freaking Saudi Arabia right now. That shit that happens in Iran right now, maybe not the setting on fire and throw off of buildings, but killing people for the same reasons, because you're an apostate. Because, you know, throwing a woman in jail for being raped because she didn't have enough men supervising her and let it happen to herself. Caning a woman because she didn't wear clothes right. And, and if you look at where Russia is geographically, And the things that are going on in Turkey, the last thing that, that Russia needs is Syria being transformed by caliphate into a theocracy. So of course they oppose that. And they have more right to oppose it than we do because they're right there. That's their backyard. We're way the hell over here, thousands and thousands of miles away. We can't learn to put our nose into our own business instead of everybody else's britches. And that's why we have bad relations with a lot of countries out there. We really do. We could have good relations with most nations on the planet if we wanted to. But we don't want to because that results in what? There's a less of a fear factor and less control of the people. And your government's primary goal above all others, control the society, control the population. That's their primary goal. Not to serve us, to control us. Here's the next question, um, to, some totally different. Josh says, Jack, question for you. Because of you, I follow Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor. Good, Howard's a good dude. Even got the certificate he offers through Texas Organic Research Center. Um, so I get the issue with synthetic fertilizers and salt runoff and all that. But with snowstorms this week, it occurred to me, what happens to all the salt we spread on the roads to the ice? I imagine it's got to be much worse than a homeowner using fertilizers. They're putting literally tons and tons of salt upon the roads. Anyway, just wondering about your thoughts. Well, it's certainly not good. And, and, and But here's the reality. More and more municipalities are going to salt-free alternatives. And, it, it, like, for instance, they use a, a chemical here that I'm sure is not wonderful for the environment, but it's... It, it, it is. It appears to be biodegradable, from what I've read. I can't remember what it's called, but they spray it as a liquid on the roads uh, before a storm, and it prevents accumulation unless you get really heavy snow. So, and, and then there's, there's more and more. Eco Traction is another uh, product that's out that that, that works with that. Uh, around here, when we do get ice beyond what the, the preemptive thing can do, they really don't spend a lot of time spreading salt. They, they, they plow where they can and they spread sand. So I think that, you know, you can, you could rag on government all the time, but you still have to acknowledge when they're moving in the right direction. I think most of the governments across the country, due to environmental concerns, are moving away from salt. I mean, the reason they used salt is it was cheap and it worked. And then there's a certain amount of the reality of, well, you know, we can't just shut the country down or half the country or a quarter of the country down because there was a snowstorm. There's something we have to do to open up the roads, and and that works. Um, I w I'm not too worried about, even like when I lived in the Northeast, and they would use salt, a mixture of salt and coal cinders. 
Um, and on our road, right up the road, I didn't really worry about how it affected our garden because it didn't really get to our garden. It, it, when it, it washed off the street, it went into the gutters, it went into the ground drains and things like that. Of course, that's a larger environmental problem, but it didn't really affect my, my personal property. And I, I, I didn't have a, a, a clue at the time, honestly, that there was even a problem with it. And I guess I would say, as much as it concerns me, I, living in the Northeast for a big part of my life, I never noticed, like, the edges of roadways being brown in the spring. Like, did it, it, did it actually kill plants or anything like that? Like, I, I never noticed that as being a problem. And, and maybe it happens somewhere, but I've never seen it. So, I, again, I think my bigger concern is that it ends up in our groundwater, uh, and, and then eventually it ends up, you know, in water treatment plants, or it ends up in ocean water if it goes through our rivers and stream systems out the ocean, which is salted anyway so of all the problems we have to solve right now i think that's a legitimate concern but i think that it's small potatoes compared with some of the bigger problems that we have to solve right now like if i could make a list of 20 problems that we could solve that are solvable as well okay so not like i want well number one is world peace well yeah, yeah me too right but but problems that we could theoretically solve if we wanted to in the next 20 years And, and, and for the next 20 years, I can pick 20 items, one a year for the next 20 years, and say, well, we'll do this one first, and this one second, and this one third, and, and this will be better for everybody. Probably salted roads wouldn't make the top 20. I don't think it would make the top 50. If I, I, I never sat down to do it, so I don't know once you solve 50 of the world's largest problems, uh, what's left. So it might make the top 100, but I know it wouldn't make the top 20. Because off the top of my head, I can think of 10 that are much bigger, like desertification. So I, I think when you when you listen to Howard Garrett, he's a big environmentalist, and, and I appreciate that. I, I consider myself one as well. Um, but he's going to hit every single reason that his audience would follow his advice. So salt into our environment from uh, the salts and fertilizer would be one of those hot buttons to hit. Um But I don't know that it's really that big of a problem from the organic gardener standpoint. I'm not really worried about the fact that if you use some you know, 10-10-10 fertilizer, you're going to put some salt into the environment. There's plenty of salt in the environment. I'm more worried about what it does to soil biology. And in the end, that's what Howard's more worried about as well. It, it, it causes a breakdown in soil biology. It provides the plant. It's like putting the plant on drugs. Uh, then the plant stops its symbiotic relationship with the soil organisms. And because of that, the, the, the biological activity in the soil it goes into decline. And because you're, you're throwing chemical fertilizer on the plant, you still see a healthy growing plant. So you don't even worry about the health of your soil. So you don't worry about organic matter and things like that. And it's a small-scale version of what happens on farms. And simply by turning that around and eliminating that and going by to an organic methodology, we restore the health and the life of the soil. So, so that's really the bigger reasoning to me than some, you know, that's the, the microcosm rather than the macrocosm in that instance. When it comes to spreading stuff like on your sidewalks and all, you know, again, I think back to the fact that we used to use salt, pure salt when I was a kid on the walkways that, you know, led up to the house of my grandparents. And not a lot, but you would, you would, you would shovel it and sometimes you'd have packed it and you'd go out with the salt bucket and the shovel and you sprinkle it around and it would melt it and it would make it, give you traction so you wouldn't kill yourself. 
And I don't remember any of the plants around that walkway ever suffering. Ever. Now, I think if you did it all the time, you would, you would kill everything. If you salt the earth enough, it will, it will go to inert and die. But that limited use never seemed to actually cause a problem. I'm not saying it didn't. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been better without it. But it wasn't noticeable to me anyway, as I think back. Uh, the next one's pretty interesting. It says, hey, Jack, what are your thoughts on the 6.5 Grendel? According to the Internet, it seems like a good cartridge, but I'd like your opinion too. I have no experience with it. Some background. I sold my AR a while ago and am starting to have seller's remorse. Not for the gun itself. It was a second-hand bargain basement special loaded with cheap furniture from the previous owner, but for the capabilities of the AR platform, if I'm going to spend the money on another one, I want to get something quality and special to me. I'm thinking about a hands-down products Triton in 6.5 Grendel and Creacoded in either OD Green or Sniper Gray. Anyway, hope to hear your thoughts. Take it easy, Russ, in Ohio. Um, I think this is what the 6.5 Grendel is, if you, if you want to think about it this way. Um, it is maximizing what the AR-15 is capable of from a standpoint of distance and ballistics. Of all of the things that they've made for the AR platform, uh, for the AR-15 platform, not the AR-10, because in the AR-10 we could basically throw a 260 in there with the right upper, right? Um, you know, so that's going to outperform. Or we could do the, the Grendel's big brother, the 6.5 Creedmoor, and what have you. So for the AR-15, though, You're talking about a fairly small capacity and small cartridge length that, that will fit in the AR-15 platform and function properly. And of everything that's ever been done with Wildcats and all, I feel like if you want the, the, the one thing that will reach out further and, and, and carry more terminal energy in an AR-15, it is, it is the 6.5 rental. Um, however, what do you want to do with it? If you wanted a an AR as a, a tactical weapon to shoot long distance with, to train with, to basically be what the AR is for most people, then I, the only reason I would caution you against it is ammo prices. And if you're going to reload, well, then fine. Don't even worry about it. Because it, it will do more than the 5.56 ever thought about doing. It absolutely will. If you're going to hunt deer with it, This how do I how do I put this? Okay, I shot a deer this year with a 357 Magnum rifle. That is not the optimum weapon for shooting deer. It worked just fine. I have a deer in the freezer to prove it. It's okay. And I would say the 6.5 Rendell is probably a more appropriate whitetail cartridge used within its range limitations, which I would say on deer would be about 200 yards and 150 would be better. Um than the, the 357 Magnum, so I'm not going to put it down. But if, if that was what you, I'm a deer hunter and I live in a state where semi-autos are legal and I want uh, an AR-style platform for hunting deer, I'd really think about going to the AR-10, except that it's a heavier gun. You know, I mean, if you're going to hunt other big game, whether you start stepping above the size of deer, then I'd really, I'd really caution you. Because here's what the, the Grendel is. The Grendel is the, the 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 baby sort of of the 6.5 millimeter ballistics world and the 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 round that put the 6.5 on the map was a 6.5 by 55 millimeter Swedish Mauser and that that round was made in first in like the 1890s I think or 1880s maybe even 
It was one of the first centerfire cartridges to, you know, along with the seven Mauser to get into modern militaries. And it was designed specifically at the time when cavalry was still a bunch of guys on horses. And it had to be capable of putting a bullet through a horse and putting a bullet down, even though we were coming down from much larger calibers to this little minuscule, you know, 6.5 millimeter. And the way that the designers made that happen was to go to a 140 grain bullet. That 140 grain bullet is long and dense and it has a high what's called sectional density. So sectional density is the more dart like something is, the higher sectional density would be. And the more round, spherical, like the lower its sectional density, or the more, uh, let's say, flat, plug-like projectile, like a a uh, a, a flat point 38 special load has a very low sectional density. And nothing to do with the power, the ability of the bullet, the projectile to penetrate, is lower because it's flat and small. So if we get something really long and really heavy, like a sable round for a tank. It comes out, and it's like a big giant dart that collapses in on itself with no explosives. It not only penetrates armor, but it, it, it melts as it penetrates armor and destroys everything inside the tank. And that's all done with sectional density. Sp speed and, 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 and speed and mass coupled with sectional density creates your penetration capability. right? And, and also with the ability of the projectile to hold together. So with all of that said... The 140 grain in the Grendel is moving about 400 feet per second slower than it is in the 6.5 Swedish or uh, the Remington 260 Remington, which is also 6.5 millimeter round. Those are ballistic twins. So now you have to come down if you want to get a little bit more velocity, a little bit more assurance of being able to reach out there and touch someone to that like 129 grain, like a Horton E Max and things like that. And they're fantastic deer rounds and they'll do just fine. So, do you want to hunt with it? Do you want it to be tactical? What do you want to do with it? Because I would also s submit to you that if you want the AR-15 and you want to hunt deer with it, you probably can't do better. It's probably, again, it's, it's the limit of what it can do. And there's nothing to stop you in the future if you want to have something you can shoot more often and, and economically from throwing a 5.56 upper on it. So you know, go forward with it. But those are the things to think about, uh, what you want to do there. If you just want to attack, like, home defense weapon, I, here's my thing with, with home defense weapon. Will the 6.5 uh, do a better job in a combat scenario uh, with long-distance engagements with enemy troops? Yes, you're not doing that, though. You're not doing that, though. Uh, at, at home defense ranges, man, I mean, how much do you need? And, and again, 5.56 more economical. Next up, I have a, a, a story for you that I, I think is pretty interesting. And uh, I, I, I really think you, 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 might enjoy, uh, you might take something away from it a little bit different. So this came out on MIT Technology Review, and it says a coal-fired power plant in India is turning carbon dioxide into baking soda. Now, everybody, I think, in this audience probably knows I'm an evil climate change denier, and I'm really not a climate change denier. I just don't believe that... The effect of CO2 on global temperatures is what they're telling you it is. I think it's much more uh, minuscule. I think there's a lot of things left out with feedbacks. And I, I will put a link in the show notes today to a video called Why Global Warming Failed. And you can watch that video. And I think it lays out the scientific case very, very eloquently. 
as to, as to the effects of what's called feedbacks and, and what have you. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I, I think we should just blow and go with all the CO2 we want. And addressing these concerns would be good. And if you have an industrial uh, process and you have waste out of that process, global warming or not, you're not following the principle of permaculture of have zero waste. Because you have waste. And waste is wasteful. So you would think that if some monumentous thing was going to happen, where a power plant burning coal would take the CO2 coming out of it and turn it into a, a harmless, productive product like baking soda, that massive amounts of government intervention must have been involved. No, this is a free market solution. I'll read a little bit of it to you. It says, in southern Indian city of Turkhorn, uh, locals are unlikely to suffer from a poorly risen cake. That's because coal-fired thermal power station... And the area copper, uh, captures carbon dioxide, turns it into baking soda. Carbon capture schemes are nothing new. Typically, typically they use a solvent such as amine to catch carbon dioxide, prevent it from escaping into the atmosphere. From there, CO2 can either be stored away or used. But the Guardian reports that a system installed in Turquin plant uses proprietary solvent developed by the company, uh, uh, Carbon Clean Solutions. The solvent reportedly just slightly more efficient than those used uh, conventionally requiring a little less energy and smaller apparatus to run. The collected CO2 is used to create baking soda and claims as much as 66,000 tons of the gas can be captured at the plant each year. And operators say that the marginal gain in efficiency is just enough to make it feasible to run the plant without a subsidy. In fact, it's claimed to be the first example of an unsubsidized industrial plant capturing CO2 for use. I'll leave it at that. Why is this important? Why is this important that they can do this without a subsidy? Because then it's actually sustainable. Let's say I'm wrong about global warming. Let's say this is the most important thing known to man. You want to believe that? That's fine. Okay, using subsidies... Still doesn't work because the energy, the money, the, the subsidy came from somewhere else. To actually solve these problems, whatever they are, the system itself must become economically viable, and that's what this does. And it, it's an example of the market will provide solutions even without the government because think about it this way. You're a power plant. You're burning coal. You're making energy. You're selling it to your customers. By adding another process, you become more profitable and diversify your offerings, diversify your revenue, and increase your bottom line profit. Are you going to do that? Are you going to say, no, I'm Montgomery Burns. I hate the planet. I want to destroy it. I don't want more money for myself and my shareholders. I want less just so I can be more polluting. The reason pollution was so rampant, you know, a hundred years ago especially, It's because it was profitable. It was profitable to pollute. And it's become less and less profitable to pollute as the markets become more and more competitive to utilize resources efficiently. I'm not even going to step out and say the government didn't play a role in curbing that pollution, because it certainly did. And there's places where government has created a, a positive impact in curbing pollution And even though it was the state that did it, I can't put it down. I can't say anything against it. I'm glad that it happened. Uh, streams and, and rivers around where I grew up in rural Pennsylvania with stepping in and making the mining companies cap off the, the sulfur uh, and iron that was leaking into the groundwater, uh, along with the coal coke and other things like that, absolutely, absolutely. But again, 
those those mines people think that like the, that's mining that's going on now no mines can't afford to run that way anymore coal mines are getting to the point where coal's going to fix itself coal's going to fix itself because it's going to become uneconomical to burn coal for electricity in another 20 years just because of technological evolution so that problem is, is long term self correcting but you can't run a coal mine today the way they did in in 1920 With, with, with inefficient breakers and, and, and you know, you just can't make any money doing it. So what I like about this is even if it it, it, it you know tickles the the bone of an eco hippie the right way, it still shows. Well, the solution is in the market itself by making things viable. We make them sustainable. If it's not economically viable, it's not sustainable. And and turning waste into baking soda. Go to a grocery store. Look at the shelves. It's economically viable. And, and those of you that are on the other side of the climate change debate for me, what you need to understand is this is the winning argument for you. So now imagine I am uh, uh, Jack, and I'm uh, the head of Jack Co. Electrical Cooperative, and I'm running a coal-fired power plant because I hate the earth. And I actually don't hate the earth. I have an environmental team, and we're worried about all kinds of waste products that come from coal. Uh, and, and trying to make the cleanest power we can from the dirty fuel that coal, coal is. And I'm not saying that facetiously. I believe that coal is the dirtiest fuel we have on the planet right now. It absolutely is. So I'm worried about all these other things. And you come to me and go, well, we need to worry about your CO2 emissions. Piss off, hippie. I don't care. I've got all this other pollution that I'm concerned about. But you come in and say, well, Mr. Spirico, what we can do for Jack Coal Electrical uh, Cooperative is we can uh, come in here with this process Uh, here's your, your 24 month to pay back on investment on it. And then here's your profit going forward by taking this extra CO2 you have and turning it into baking soda. Whether I'm concerned about, concerned about profits or polar bears, you've got me. You've got me. I'm in. Let's do this. Why? Because it's, it's viable. It's profitable. It makes sense. It's addressing a concern and it's, it's doing something like I can employ some of my staff to do this work because the product that comes out is sellable into the marketplace. Now, if it's we're going to we're going to capture it and stick it in the dirt, right in the ground in a big pocket of CO2 like a big air pocket of CO2 in the earth, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, you could trick me into doing it by giving me carbon credits for something like that, but that's not sustainable. This is. There you go. This next one comes from Jason and uh Jason says in his email to me Got to share this one with you. You are just talking about breaking the, that 100K. This article shows one of the best I've read on wealth. It's called Forget Skipping Starbucks. Here's five real ways to get rich. I swear this author listened to your podcast this week. I mean, invest in you. Be great at what you do. Multiple streams and 100K. I wager he's a TSP listener. Laugh out loud. I don't know that he is. His 100K definition is a little different than mine, too. But let me read you the article because it is pretty good. Too many people are out there offering ridiculous ideas on how you can become rich. I can promise you that you will not get rich by skipping your daily latte. Look, if you don't have income, then there's no money to save. So don't let anybody give you the idea you need to skip your Starbucks half, you need to save $3 a day, and that will somehow turn into a fortune. You can skip your $5 Starbucks every day and save $10,000 over the next five years. If you take $10,000, it's going to change your life. You're not just broke, you're being stupid. Of course, you should spend less than you earn, but if you make $50,000 a year with a couple of kids, what money is there left over to save? If you're serious about getting rich, you need to get your mind focused on income, increase your income enough, and you will be able to save something substantial. Here are non five nonfiction tips you can use to actually get you to millionaire status. Number one, invest in you. 
Successful people invest time, energy, and money in improving themselves. A man told me once, the best way you can help people in need is to not be someone in need. Help yourself out so you are a position to help someone else out. This means investing in yourself to become great at something. I invested in sales training when I was 25. That made me an income, my income producing ability skyrocket. Invest in yourself is the best investment you can make. Two, find a job in the right vehicle. The rich are able to get in the right company where there is the opportunity for growth. My VP of sales, Jared Glunt, uh, started working for me over seven years ago for $2,500 a month. <clears throat> he wasn't making anything, but he was in the right vehicle. He grew his skill set and was able to multiply his monthly income many times over because he knew I was looking to expand. Too many people just look for a job. You need a job, but you need the right vehicle. All companies live from this thing called revenue. Get commissions rather than just salary, and you will finally be in control of how much you earn. Three, get great at what you do. Commit to being great, not just average. Any industry can be a painful profession for average and bottom performers, but massively rewarding for those that are great, those that live, breathe, and eat their profession, those that are obsessed with becoming great. I have never met a great who wasn't all in and completely consumed by their trade, have you? The fact is, if you aren't great, you're average. The rich are great. Four, get multiple connected income streams flowing. You won't get rich without multiple flows of income. That starts with the income you currently have. Increase that income and start adding multiple flows. You want, you're, you want what the system calls symbiotic flows. Do not just disconnect, not, do not add disconnected flows. <coughs> Instead, find other ways you can, you can add income to the job you already have. My video guy does advertising for me. And after proving himself, he started making advertisements for those connected to me. He didn't start a donut shop. Too many people go from one flow to a second flow, resulting in two flows that do nothing. Your flow should always be connected. Five, hit 100K, then invest the rest. First, try to save $100,000. Why? You need to prove to yourself that you can go out and get money. If you only have $10,000 saved, your only priority should be increasing your income so you can save more. Saving $100,000 shows that you have the ability to make money and then to keep it. Most people can't do either of those things. Once you can and save, then you can start building wealth. I'd recommend a multifamily real estate. If you're conservative like me, uh, I never looked to get rich quick, but I look to get rich. Okay, so I, I agree with all the points. I don't necessarily agree with all of the extrapolation of the points, but let's go through and I'll give you my thoughts. Invest in yourself. Um, this is something I've always taught. And I believe it's something that most people do not do. Uh, this is anything from trainings and certifications to self-directed education. Uh, but one of the biggest things that is involved in investing yourself is the concept of don't take a job for the money. Take a job for what it can teach you. And once it's taught you all, you, all that it can, when you find some place that can teach you more, go there. If you're doing that, your income will go up as you move. It, it just will. Because when you've learned all you can from a given job and you look for the job that will teach you something new, it will inherently pay better. And at some point, you should be making the leap out of the job into business if you really want wealth and you really want to control it. And that's part of what I, I, don't, I don't like here is this guy clearly is an entrepreneur and he keeps using the term job, 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 job. He's writing it from the standpoint of an employer and not necessarily want to tell people to go out and start their own concerns uh, so much because, well, then you don't have anybody to work for you. So... There is a little bit of that going on. Find a job that is the right vehicle. And, and that's kind of what I was talking about. That's kind of how that, that goes into. So it's one thing to say, I'm going to go find a company that's up and coming. I, I, you know, I look at my son, and I think he's done that right now. I think this new job that he's been doing, I think he has a real opportunity to grow with the company. 
And because he's in so early with this company, if the company's successful, and it sure looks like it's going to be from their early successes, that he'll have a position in three or four years that he could never have gotten to in three or four years if he had gone to work for a larger competitor where there's a lot bigger bureaucracy. So I think there is that standpoint. A sales position with sales talent in a company that's going to grow fast and you're on commission and you have an honest person you're working for that won't change the way you're paid in commission, that's great. But I'm telling you, I've experienced that. I've experienced having my commission cut through something called an incremental commission factor, or ICF, which basically means we give you a target and your commission gets you to a, 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 a target sales, and then you only make real money on what you go above your target. And your target goes up every year, so your actual commission goes down every year. If you're on a commission like you make 4% of gross sales, and they're going to stick to it, and they don't take accounts away from you, then being a salesman can be better, can be better than being an entrepreneur. It's just hard to find because people get greedy. See, the way I always looked at it, If, if as an employer, I was writing a one-month paycheck to a salesman for a million dollars, I should be singing songs while I'm writing it. I should throw in a massage at his desk from a, a masseuse and, and, and a day off for, for, for him earning a million dollars. I should have no qualms about paying him every penny of that because how much must he have made the company to make that million dollars? I mean, the salesmen are the infantry of corporate America. But I've been through three different positions where I've had my commissions jacked with. Actually, two where I had the commissions jacked with, and one where I had an account taken from me. We're going to make this what's called a house account now, so you can go back out to acquiring more business, because we think it's taking you too much time to service this account. Well, I'm, yes, I'm servicing the account because it's making me lots of money, and that's my job, and I'm still bringing in new business. But they got greedy. So you got to be careful with that. So when I'm looking for a job to the right vehicle, I'm looking at more about what does it lead to. And, and that question needs to be answered within the job and after the job or outside of the job. Where does it take me? So I agree with it, but that's kind of my uh, higher level look at it. Get great at what you do. I mean, that speaks for itself, doesn't it? But how many people don't? How many people don't? How many people get good enough to not be bothered by their boss and that's it? And I think where you really have to get great at what you do is when you go into entrepreneurship. You want to make YouTube videos at all or do a podcast or something like that, like kind of this world that a lot of people have done okay in. I've always said, like, don't worry about sucking in the beginning. No one's paying attention. Nobody's listening. But maybe what I don't say enough of this, you got to keep doing it and you got to keep trying to be better. When I started this show in my car, I would drive to work in the morning and record the show. I would already have everything ready to go on my blog. I would get there. I'd dump it into Vegas. It would take me about... 30 seconds to, to, to put it in Vegas, drop the music on both sides, hit render. And then I'd start checking my email. And you know, when I, when I, when I get done with my email batch, I'd look over and the file was there and I'd hit upload and then I would put it into the thing and I'd hit publish. And that was it. That's what I did. You know, once I was at work, the, the, the kind of the cheating, right? And then on the way home, I would get my iPhone In the very beginning, it was an iPod, right? Because I had a Blackberry, so I had an iPod. And you know, I'd have that plugged in all day. So it would download on iTunes. I was one of my own subscribers. And I would plug that into my, my car stereo. And I would listen to my podcast from that morning. Not going, oh, Jack, look how awesome you are. Going, how can I do this better? 
What, what am I using placeholders? Am I saying um, you know, whatever it is? What 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 would be better? Was was that rant too harsh? Was it over the top? Was it too extreme? Would I lose people with it? Right? Would I lose myself? Because if I lose you, but I wouldn't lose myself, I don't care. I'm trying to attract like attracts like. Words of Richard Bach. But if I if I think of myself, I would have been turned off by that. Well, I need to rein that in a little bit. And some of the early episodes, there were some times where I got baited by people. I did some things I wasn't real proud of. I never took them down, but I learned from them. That's part of getting great at what you do. You have to analyze what you're doing the way that a football player analyzes game tapes. They don't watch themselves making touchdowns. They watch that touchdown they mentioned by two inches that they should have got across the goal line, or they watch their fumble. But I'll tell you what else they do. They don't sit there and go, I suck. They think I'm really good at what I do, but I want to be better. I want to be great. And even when I get to the point where I say, I am great, I still want to be greater. That, that's the attitude you have to have in business if you're going to be successful. Number four, get multiple connected income streams flowing. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've tried to develop multiple streams of income in this business, and I'll tell you that it's nice to have multiple streams because if one takes a hit for some reason, there's another one to take up the slack. That's another thing. Connectivity is a really great thing. Um, as I've springboarded other things, I think I've made some mistakes with not keeping things consolidated and using the power that comes from having you know, the survival podcast as a brand. So like anything I add at this point going forward has to be part of this brand. You know, not just like under the umbrella. I'm not, I'm not Richard Branson. I don't have that ability. If you look at people like Richard Branson, like half the shit they do fails. Right. So there's that. And they have a lot more clout and money and investors and structure than I do. So I think keeping a consolidation of your efforts, especially in the entrepreneur world, is very important. And multiple income streams are important. But I don't know that they all need to be connected. So, like, at the end, he says, you know, I, I would think about multifamily housing. Well, if you're going to be a real estate investor and invest in multifamily housing, right, like that's buying a you know, small, like a quad or a triplex or a duplex and renting it, okay, that's not connected to, to, to what most other people are doing, if they're doing video work or something like that. Now, they might be able to leverage the video work by making very compelling advertising for the property to get good high-level tenants in. But, and if you can make the connection, fine, but you shouldn't rule something out just because it's not connected, especially if it makes sense. And, and real estate's not for everybody, but it is a good wealth-building vehicle because you're, you're making money so many different ways in real estate because you have, you, know, you have equity capture. And that means when I buy a house, it goes up in value. When I sell it, I've captured equity. You have cash flow from your rent. You have tax write-offs. And if you structure real estate investing right, you can make lots of money and pay almost no taxes on it with heavy cash flow. And, and that's... And I'm not going to go into it because you can do a, I can do a whole show just on real estate investing, and that's not my bag, right? Because I, I don't actually do that. I generally don't teach people to do what I don't do. But the connected income streams. And then hit 1K and invest the rest. So what he's saying is you should save $100,000 liquid. And then from that point, that's when you start buying stocks and bonds and stuff like that. I, I don't know that I agree with that. Uh, I definitely believe you should have 90 days worth of, of, of income in a savings account, at least. And six months is better. So if you make two hundred thousand a year, then a hundred thousand in pure liquid cash, that that won't make sense. And you could have a million dollars, two million dollars, and at some point you might be sitting in all cash. You might be a hundred percent liquid. But there's other times where there's investment opportunities that you should be invested. Um now, when I first read the step, I thought he was saying hit a hundred thousand a year in income and keep growing, and then like say a hundred thousand is enough to live on. 
And anything you make beyond $100,000 every year, invest it, whether it's direct savings or going into businesses or whatever. And, and, and so $100,000 is your cap for income. And you know, maybe raise that as inflation dictates. That's actually kind of doable. You can have a decent life in America on hundred grand. There's places like in New York and all to live there. You, you really can't. Um, don't live there. Don't live in those places. And uh, I, I think that many Americans would do well with the plan of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crush the $100,000 income barrier. And I'm, I don't mean just get there. I'm going to crush it. And, but I'm going to cap my, my, my life at $100,000 income. And I'm going to take all the rest of it and I'm going to save it and invest it. That, that, that would be okay. Um, the concept, though, that all of your efforts when it comes to saving and, and building wealth in the cash world are best suited to just make more and save, make more and save, make more and save until you have $100,000 saved. Don't worry about investing in the stock market when you have $30,000. John Pugliano teaches that. I teach that. So if that's where he's coming from with this one, it's a little iffy to me. But if that's where he's coming from, I completely agree. But it's a good article. There's a there's a link in today's show notes so you can check it out. Uh, it is by a cat. What's his name? His name is Grant Cardone. Never heard of him before, but I will put a link in the show notes so you can check him out. So this next one came up on uh, Facebook. Quite a few different people um, tagged me on Facebook so that I would see this story. And uh, so I don't remember exactly who, but quite a few people said, Jack, you're right again. Um, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and Representative DeSantis uh, have introduced a constitutional amendment to impose term limits on members of Congress. And uh, the big thing, and I'm not going to read the article, but if you actually look up the legislation, Section 3, uh, in layman's terms, says that existing elected officials will not be affected by the term limits. So Ted Cruz is saying you can only stay in the Senate for two terms, but it doesn't apply to him. Now, I, 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 there's there's good and bad things I can say about Ted Cruz both. Uh, I don't despise Ted Cruz the way that some do, and I certainly don't have the love. It seems like Ted Cruz is one of those people, you know, people either despise him or they think he's like the second coming of Reagan or some shit, uh, which that necessarily wouldn't put you in my good graces. But uh, he, he, he did this, I don't think, to make sure he could stay in the Senate. I think Ted Cruz has his eyes firmly planted on the White House, and I think this is... Uh, one of the things he wants to put on the map for himself when he makes another run at the White House, either in four or eight years, depending on how things go. And I think it would be a good thing to have, to be able to, to be able to come out and say, look, I believe in limited government so much that I have the reason there's term limits on Congress today. And so I, I'm not necessarily saying that his motivation is, is pure and good for the people, but that his, uh, his method is, is intelligent. Because I told you last month, as we were wrapping things up, uh, the, the you know, buzz was going around about this possibly being something somebody tries to make a run with this year. It could happen and it might pass. And that the way to get it passed would be to exempt serving politicians from it. Because if I'm, you know, uh, John Cornyn, who's a, my house rep, who's been in the, the, the Texas House, actually not the Texas House, the Federal House, as a Texas rep for my district, for as long as I can remember. I don't know exactly how long Cornyn's been there. Wait, I'm screwing that all up. I'm sure Cornyn is out of the house because he became a senator. That's right. Uh, 
he took uh, what's what's her name's position Hutchison right so but Cornyn was a a a, a U.S. congressional rep for like ever here in Texas and now he's a senator right so so he I don't think he stood re-election yet yeah, he hasn't so once he stands re-election under this he would be out the door you have to leave you have to go find something else to do I have no motivation to vote for that. I mean, really, when you think about it, like, it's like asking Congress to vote to cut their own salaries. They're not going to do it. I, I know you think, well, there's people that would. Well, they're not going to win office. Not in sufficient numbers to make it happen. But if I can go down, especially, you know, we've got a Republican majority now, and I would tell you that the majority of American people favor term limits. It's an overwhelming majority, and it's bipartisan. So if I can go back to my constituents and say, I supported this amendment to our Constitution, something that hasn't been done in a very long time. We sent this to the states for ratification, and the, and the states approved it. And we've given the power back to you, the people. But I don't have to lose my job. Win, 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 as far as I'm concerned, whether I think it's a good idea or not. I don't want to be seen as opposing it, especially if I'm vulnerable in upcoming elections. I want to see I want to solidify my ability to keep this job for life with my gerrymandered district. And I'll tell you what, it is making a deal with the devil. It is we will let you continue to have your stranglehold for a long time, but the stranglehold will come to an end and there's going to be a limit to how long anybody can serve in office. And that's going to prevent this war chesting and these people that stay in office for 30 or 40 years. I mean, turning my focus to one of the one of the politicians I love to hate, and I just wish she would go away, Nancy Pelosi. I just looked it up on uh, on uh, Google. Nancy Pelosi has been in the House for 29 years. 29 years. This person has been influencing and making decisions, rising to the level of Speaker of the House until her party got thrown out. 29 years. You know, considering you just rounded up to 30, 15 terms. 15 terms. And I'll bet you, people that vote for her, people that will vote for her over and over and over again, by and large, would still support term limits. They're voting for her because they feel like that's their only choice, because they're dyed-in-the-wool Democrats. She's from San Francisco's 12th district, or California's 12th district, right? I mean... It, it, that district is so overwhelmingly Democrat. That's why she's been there 29 years. No matter how big of a you know Republican revolution's ever occurred, she's not losing her position. Well, she's not losing her office. She lost her position. You know, and, and that kind of brings me to another thing that I think would be good about term limits. Um, it, when, this is something that, that, that again, like three quarters of the country supports, 74, 75%. And this is like, you know, again, you, you, you when you do a poll, Generally, there's a huge divide when you ask people over 65 a question and under 30 a question. And one side will swing one way and one side will swing the other way based on the issue. And you can understand with the, that much of a generational difference why that might be the case. But in this case, under 30, over 30, over 65, under 65, about three quarters of the country says we need this. We, we, there's no reason for these people to be in charge for this long. But the, 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 the one out of four that will say, oh, we need experienced politicians. Experienced to what? Stealing money from the American people, being bought off, you know, grifting and grafting. What, what, what do we need experience to doing? Lying, 
right? But when we, we look at leadership positions like Speaker of the House, like a Senate majority and, and minority leadership roles and, and things like that, well, it is better that those people have some experience. Just in, you know, just in basically the procedures and getting things done and whatever. So that would mean that in general, if you had a, a, a very young term-wise Congress, both Senate and House, that they're going to elect more senior members into those leadership roles. But those more senior members, you know, once you, once we clean the gullet out, because this might take 25, 30 years making this deal with the devil to get rid of them. Once we clean it out, um, it's a relatively short term that somebody would have as much power as Speaker of the House. So you think about it this way. They elect somebody Speaker of the House. He's uh, six years in. Well, the, the maximum amount of time that person could spend as Speaker is six years. The Speaker of the House gets turned over a little bit more than, than other things do, I think, within parties. But Pelosi has a stranglehold on it. And she still has a stranglehold on, on the, 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 the House minority leadership. Uh, overwhelmingly uh, reelected by her peers because of fear of what that position can do to you if you're a defector. And that is a big part of what keeps those people in power. So just the fact that the, the, the major leaderships would be ebbing out at it once again, once you clean the, out the parasites, would, 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 would ebb out even faster because you're probably not taking a first term congressman uh, to the House and making him or her into the speaker. You're probably not taking, you know, a senator in his third year and making him the majority or the minority leader. You might, but you're probably not. So if the average person that comes into the role of Senate majority leader under this new system with term limits uh, came in under their second term, been around a while, again, you're back to a maximum of six years in that position, and many times even less. Because when somebody atrophies out, Then they're going to turn and say, well, who do we know, who's been around here longest, whatever. They might have somebody that only has one more term left, maybe three years. And as a senator that wants that position, it behooves me to support them so they can get the hell out of it so I have a shot at it before I have to go. So I think it would create turnover on the outside and the inside. And I think it has a real chance of passing. I think another reason it has a chance of passing is it will have presidential support. Trump's an egomaniac. Like him or hate him, you got to admit it, the man has an ego a mile wide. And this is a very populist issue. And he ran on a populist platform. You don't get more populist than, than, than 70% or more support on all age groups, on all demographics, on all races, and on both parties. Democrats and Republicans poll almost equally on this. So you've got something with huge popular support. You've got a populist president that will throw whatever weight he can behind it. You've got the Congress clowns, the senators and the, and the, and the, the representatives, who are told, everybody wants this, everybody likes this, you'll be a hero, and it doesn't affect you. I think we've got a real chance of it happening. I think it might be the most powerful stroke for liberty that we have left uh, in our system. And, and frankly, I would be okay with it if it was like uh, House reps are limited to three terms and senators one. I mean, six years is a lot of time to hold the power of the Senate. But I'll take two. I'll take I'll take a 12-year limit on both of them. I'll take it. And if i got to make a deal with the jackasses in charge to get it done, because I think it's the only way you're going to get it done, I'd do that too. And that, that's me. And I'm as non-political as it gets. You, I messed up with Cornyn. He's my senator, and I forgot that he became senator from, 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 from the House, that he moved over. And moved up in the world. 
Because I, I, I give that little of a shit about these people anymore because I know that they're all bought off. But even I'd support it. I'm an anarchist and I support it. You got it. I mean, really, I think the 70%, 75% number, I think there's a problem with the poll question. Are you asking this question inside the Beltway? Where lobbyists are answering and going, gee, I'd have to buy people off and more often and I'd have to win them back over. I mean, or where are you asking this? You find one out of four saying, I don't like the idea of term limits. Are you asking Congress? Are there congressmen in this poll? Are people that they're trying to get into congressmen? I mean, if you, if you go to middle America, I got to think your number is closer to 80, 85%. Anyway, let's take another one. Next, we have a report from a listener. Uh, about surviving an individual disaster, the kind of stuff we talk about preparing for first. Hi, Jack. Just wanted to quickly, this is from Matt. I'm betting Matt is either from Australia or the UK because of his use of the world, the word whilst. Um, I've never met anybody that wasn't from one of those two places that uses that word. It says, hi, Jack. I just wanted to say quickly thank you for helping me get myself prepared for whatever life throws at you. I've been listening to your podcast for a good number of years now. Initially, I thought prepping was all about surviving the so-called zombie apocalypse. And I had big plans of building a bomb-proof underground bunker, etc., which I could survive in for many months when Teotihuacan situation occurs. That's the world end of the world as we know it, uh, as, uh, as most of you probably know. But you made me realize that this sort of disaster is one of the million events uh, in your practical, one, a one in a million event, and your practical advice on how to start prepping has really paid off for me. Last month, the company I was working for went bankrupt, and whilst <clears throat> this was a stressful time not knowing uh, where my next paycheck was coming from, I was thankful that I had been following your advice. I had managed to build up reserve supply of basic necessities, which meant I knew at least I wouldn't go hungry for two or three months whilst finding my new job. This put me in a much better position than some of my now ex-colleagues, some of whom had thought me a bit strange for keeping boxes of food and medicine, etc., under my bed. Ironically, it was these people who were the most vocal in calling me a crazy survivalist who also struggled with the most with unemployment, with some of them not even having enough of the bare and essential stored to last them a single week and getting themselves into debt having to buy groceries on credit cards under your guidance, I had also set up some sideline work whilst my job, meaning that, whilst in my job, meaning that although it wasn't extravagant, I was still able to have an enjoyable Christmas with my friends and family without worrying too much about whether I could afford a simple pleasures such as having a beer or two with loved ones. Your wisdom and expertise meant that I was able to focus my efforts on the important factor matter of finding new work. I'm happy to report I am now back at my regular, back in regular employment and working hard to replenish the reserves I used over that past month. Thank you for what you're doing and what you do. I have no doubt that you have made an enormous difference to the lives of many people across the globe, Matt. Well, Matt, that is exactly what TSP is all about. That, that is, that's a testimonial for the brand. That's what I teach. You prepare for that first because it happens. It happens all the time. And either you're ready for it or you're not. And if you're not ready for it, it can be cataclysmic. I know people whose lives have been, like, they never really ever recovered from a job loss. I know a guy that had a high-paid sales position, but he lived by the seat of his pants. And he ended up with some problems, and that problem cost him his job. There was no doubt that it was a, he needed to go. He just wasn't right for the position anymore. He was let go. But he had a job, a good job, and he was pretty good at it when his problem wasn't in the way. And 
once he lost his job and was able to focus on his problem, I don't want to go into it because it's a personal thing, but he solved his problem. But he's never gotten a good job again. He sold cars and not, not like at a really nice dealership where you got a long term, I mean, like, you know, like, like a back alley car lot. Uh, he sold meat, like it's like a Swanson's meat or something like that. Uh, he, he drifted around. I, I, the last that I heard, he had a job in like a, uh, like a textile factory. And he was lucky to have that because there's not many of those jobs left, but he was able to get in. A buddy got him in or something like that. So this is a guy who was making six figures in sales. And right now he's probably making, you know, 10, 15 bucks an hour working swing shift, you know, uh, loading cloth or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do. I promise you that's not what this guy wants to do. And what happened is he, he got into so much debt, he went bankrupt, and he got, he, he, you know, part of his problem had some level to do with depression, but he got so depressed by losing his job that he ended up out of the market for so long. He couldn't get a job doing what he was actually good at, so he had to take what he could get. And the more jobs like that he took, the less marketable he became. And he probably sort of still rectified it, but it went down into a spiral where he just didn't have it in him anymore, and he just went back to like a mediocre existence. And again, this isn't like office space where Peter goes and uh, works in construction sites with uh, the, the other guy because he wanted to, because he needed something different, like because he wanted to be happy. It's this is all I got. And I really believe if that person had been prepared financially uh, and, and logistically for that loss, they could have solved the problem they had and come back and been just fine in another position. Because when he first lost his job, sales in the technology sector is is a big family. And when you know somebody loses a job, you always know somebody looking to hire someone, and there's always somebody to make you a connection. And there are plenty of people ready to make a connection for him. But, you know, like five, six years later, when he was even taking a stab at it, after he had failed as a, as a meat salesman, um, you know, selling meat out of the back of a truck, uh, the people weren't so hip to say, hey, he's my buddy, you should give him a, a crack. You know, so that meant going to another industry with no contacts, explaining the five years, and it just, you know, he was never able to get back on his feet. People didn't want to take the risk. And it doesn't help that, you know, his... Attempt at coming back happened right in like around 2009. Like as bad as it got economically. When you could pick and choose who you wanted. So being prepared for this stuff is important, guys. Because it can be life-altering or it can be a minor inconvenience. It can destroy what you've worked for. Or it can be something where you go out and have a beer and, and take a week off. And then come back strong and find something else. It's all about preparedness. This next one comes from Chris. Chris says, can a person be prepared and be a minimalist at the same time? So I like the idea of minimalism. We've been getting rid of things that we don't use and things we think we need but we've never used. With a fewer things taking up space and time, I feel like I have more time and space to do the things I enjoy. It's kind of hard to explain. How could you balance a life of being prepared and also being a minimalist, Chris? Well, Chris, you can, but there's things that you can replace with knowledge and there's things that you can't replace with knowledge. And what I mean by that is, if you know how to forage, you can get food. But if there's not food to be foraged, you can't get food and you need to store food. Would, would be one way to look at that. Another way to look at that would be, you know, I can know everything about a vehicle and how to fix it. And there's certain things I can fabricate for parts. But if I need a starter motor, I need a starter motor. And, and all the mechanical knowledge in the world, if the existing starter motor is unrepairable, 
will not let me fix that starter motor. And even if I can fix it, well, I need tools. I, I can't telekinetically look at the two bolts that hold the starter to the motor uh, body and, and, and mentally cause them to rotate counterclockwise and loosen up and come out. So even with skills, there's certain things that are needed. And if you don't have them, your life is tough, especially when the systems of support that replace them are no longer there. So it's what do you want to minimize? For instance, I, I look around my office, and I keep talking about this because I'm trying to get up the, the will to do it because I love books. And I've pared down my books multiple times on multiple moves, but I still have tons of books. And I really don't like hard copy books anymore, except for certain books. Certain books just don't work unless they're hard copy really well. But most books, especially books that you just read, and I'm more of a reader than a, you know, a, a recipe book guy. I have a few books like that. Uh, they just work fine on a computer or on a phone or a tablet. So I have all these books, and, and, and like the ones I like the most because I've pared down so many times. But I can get rid of all of those. It's not going to affect my preparedness. Any of the knowledge in those books that I really need that I don't have in my head, I, I have some electronic source to be able to get the same information, even though I don't have the whole book there. So about the only books I really need to be keeping are the ones that are not available electronically or the electronic version sucks or they don't work for electronics. That means most of this shit can go. I have reloading manuals. I have four editions of the same manual. Just because when a new edition came out and I was really hot on reloading, I got the new edition, but I didn't want to throw away the old edition because the old edition had loads in it that were not in the new edition, like my Special 44 Magnum load, right? So I, I just... I can still get rid of those books. The loads that I want, I have them on a computer. I have them on backup. I don't need it. So I need to do that. But I'm like going, but I, I start looking and go, there's a book on pythons and boas. I like snakes. I like that book. That's a cool book. You know, I think I, I plan on taking that book and showing my grandson that book because he gets a little older. So it's got a lot of pictures in it and stuff like that. Well, I can keep that one. But I look at the next book and go, well, I like that one too. At some point, you have to make a decision what's got to go if you want to minimize. And I want to minimalize so I can put some fish tanks in here. And that actually is a minimalist attitude because then I can breed tilapia in my tanks and I can put those tilapia into my larger tanks in my pond to grow them out and then I can have food and then I don't have to store as much food because I have a food production system. So the best minimalist survivalists have systems that provide what they need on an on-demand basis. And the reality is the best place for that is tropical and subtropical climates where it doesn't freeze or it doesn't hard freeze and you can literally produce food 365 days a year. As you move into northern climates with greenhouses and walpinis and blah, 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 well, then you have to have more stuff to make it happen. So you have to figure out for yourself what minimalism is to you. Because I'll be the first person to say, I'm not a minimalist. I have tons of crap that I don't need. But I understand that about myself, and I'm not trying to fool myself with it. If I wanted to minimize, I would have to think really hard about how to do it to remain prepared. So I think like the biggest things you need to be prepared with are energy, food, water, shelter, um, security, And health and sanitation. Well, if you shore all of those up really well, then nothing else is a need. Then you're only dealing with wants, and then it gets easier to minimalize. So I think minimalism, especially as an on-ramp to preparedness, might make a lot of sense. Like, I'm going to put a moratorium on new shit unless it has a direct proportional 
uh, factor against my preparedness for realistic threats to my security, safety, and economic well-being. I, that's the best I can do with that. Um, again, I'm, I'm not really a minimalist. I had what's his name, uh, Jacob Lung Fisker from Early Retirement Extreme on many years ago. I like the philosophy that he's teaching, but I kind of come at it from this way. That's how you live before you can have what you want so that you can have what you want. And that doesn't mean, I mean, I don't, I'm not a minimalist, but I don't have like just tons of useless crap that, that I, that I have just because I wanted it. I have a few things like that. And generally what happens when I, when I buy something just because I wanted it and I realize I'm not going to use it, I find somebody else that wants it and I give it away. That's, that, that's happened quite a bit in my life. And I think that's another thing to look at. If you're going to be a minimalist, think about putting the stuff you don't need into the hands of somebody that does need it. Uh, because I believe karma is a real thing. This next one is from Keith. Keith says, uh, I wonder if you would like to do a show about how to organize an event or similar to those that you host on your property. What's needed to prepare? <clears throat> Speakers, workshops, accommodation, the whole works. More specifically, events uh, as a fundraiser to help new homesteaders and small holders get started. I can't remember a specific TSPO about, TSP episode about this, but I picked up pieces here and there from videos and podcasts. Enjoy your holiday. I'm looking forward to hearing from you in the new year and the renewed you. Cheers, Keith. It's uh, from Scottish Borders. Okay. So let's start out with something that I think needs to be said. You don't make a lot of money doing these things. I don't say that so I can be like, oh, poor me. Look how hard I work. No. I just So many people see a successful event organizer pull off an event And say we're going to sell 36 seats to it and sell out. You know, we sold out last time in two hours. Uh, and then you do math. And they say, well, that's $16,000, $500 a seat. Well, no, it's not. Because not every student's paying full price. And, you know, some students, there's usually somebody that's earned a free seat or something. But we usually take in 14 ish thousand dollars. Okay. So we are in 400 bucks just for Portageons. You start to see where this goes. Our, our, our food bill is generally somewhere in the $3,000 range. I do have some speakers that I pay. I do have some speakers, like the, the fun and skills that we're doing now, I have figured out a way to expand the speaker base by saying, if you want to be a speaker and you bring me something relevant and I choose you, you get $100 off. So that's a $400. So that's $100 off of the, the top line revenue right there. Um, But sometimes if you're going to bring in a bigger speaker, you do have to make some kind of accommodation for them. I do have help that I pay. We have a staff of, including my wife, six, so we have five paid people just as event staff. So you start to see the money get dwindled down. And then, well, what are we doing? Honestly, the last one we did, we did pretty well with because we didn't have a big installation. You know, but if I, but we did a lot with the aquaponics system and the greenhouse and all of that. And if, if I were to, If I would have built it in the event, it would have eaten almost all the profit down. That was just money that was already spent and we're using it, so it wasn't part of the event. So <clears throat> people start saying, like, it's, it's to be seed capital for a new homestead. What people think is, well, I'll do this workshop and people will come out and they'll pay me to work and they'll get all this stuff done and then I'll, I'll put you know $10,000 in my pocket at the end of it. I can use that over the next year to improve the homestead. It's difficult if you don't have the breadth and the reach to bring people in. You know, I mean, my limitation here on the workshop is not how many tickets I can sell. Because I can sell 30 to 40 tickets, bam, a couple hours. If I could, 
acquire the land behind me or something like that and, and solve the camping and parking situation, I could run an event and I could probably see, you know, maybe take a couple days to, to see them all, but I could fee see 50 to 70 people. I think at that point it would become, even with my reach, difficult to put more people in. And I wouldn't even go that high. I'd love to get it up to where I could, I could bring in 40 to 50 students. And I'll tell you why. Because the work you do to support 36 and the work you do to 450, support 50, and the, the bills, like the food and all, you always end up with surplus food. It doesn't go up that much. And those last people would almost be all profit. So I think if you wanted to make real money, your 50 student thing is your sweet spot. Because your last 20, that's $10,000 you're probably putting in the bank. We generally make, I'll be, I'll disclose it, somewhere in the neighborhood of $4,000. Which isn't terrible, but if you, if you, if you look at the hours that Dorothy and I put in, not just during the event, but leading up to it, we can go get a job at Walmart and do better by the hour. We do it for the love of it. We do it for the camaraderie. We, we do it as a service to the community. So you have to temper your expectations. And because of who we are, what we are, how long we've been doing it, the following we have, we can charge $500 a seat and people will come. It may be a lot harder to get that kind of money. So what people do is they turn to speakers and they say, I know what I'll do. I'm guilty of it. I tried to do it the first year. It never logistically happened. And now I'm glad that it didn't because it made me stand up on my own. I'll bring Jeff Watton in. Well, Jeff's like, yeah, I want 12 grand. <clears throat> Okay, well, I can't say you're not worth it, um, but I don't have anything left now. I'm going to lose money to run the event. Now i got to do a 100-person event. And the problem with doing a 100-person event <clears throat> is it loses the cohesion, the, 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 the camaraderie. And if you're, if, if you're the person people are coming to see, not everybody gets time with you. It's even a struggle at, you know, when I do a 32- to 36-student event, I end up with 60 people on the property. Between extra speakers, staff, all that shit. So it makes it hard for you to spend time with everybody, which you want to do as the host or as the, the talent. And then any speaker that you're going to get that's legitimately going to pull people in is going to charge significantly for doing so. Because they have to, because they're in demand, and they have concerns of their own to see to, and you're taking them away from those concerns. I mean, if you want me to come speak at your event, let's say it's in Denver, Colorado, and it's a two-day event, And I'm going to be there for it. Well, I'm out of here at least four days for that. I have to have somebody see to my farm if my wife's coming with me, and she probably is because she's my my personal assistant. Uh, so it's probably five days by the time it's all over with. Now, I might attach a mini uh, vacation on it because I'm already away from home, but th that would have never happened. And now that means I'm not seeing to my business for that period of time. And if there's if there's multiple people asking me to speak and I'm willing to do it, and one's willing to give me eight grand, and the other one's willing to give me three grand, which one do you think I'm going to go do? For, I mean, this doesn't really apply to me, but if it did, if I was if I was a guy that did a lot of the speaking and stuff like that, like I used to do, um, I'd have to make financial decisions that way. I just have to. It's, it, it, there's no way around it, because it, it hits your bottom line. So if you're going to bring in speakers that are that are... Not just good, but, but big name speakers that draw people because of themselves look to pay out multiple thousands of dollars to get it done, plus their airfare. And if they're not going to stay on site, then you got to figure out you're going to probably end up paying room and board for them. I mean, see what it costs to get Joel Salatin in to do a, an engagement, and it's, it's not cheap. And most of those guys that are that big, they don't hang out. 
You know, they don't they don't hang out for three days with people. So you, you got to really think about where you're going to get your speakers from. So what I've always tried to do <clears throat> is bring in speakers from within the fold of the community that I've created. I bring John Pugliano in at every event because he's willing to be there and he's fantastic. I don't think he's a huge draw. I think there might be, you know, a couple people like, I'm really happy John's going to be there. I'm going to be there. I doubt there's somebody that if I didn't have John this one time would say, well, I'm not going to that one because John's not there. Now, if I was a jerk and kicked him out, you might not come because you think I'm an asshole. But what I mean is you wouldn't make the decision on that. Nick Ferguson is pretty much at every one of my events, right? And a lot of you love Nick, and you should. He's amazing. But if he's not going to be, like the last one, it was almost where he wasn't going to be able to come just because he had other things to do. But I don't think you're not going to not come because Nick's not there. Right? So you, you, when you find speakers like that, then you can pay them a little bit or, or you can make a deal with them to basically get a free seat or whatever or a discount depending on how. See, the reason I do that is let's say I could only sell 25 seats. That's it. Well, then I would give away a free seat to my, to my instructors. But I can only have so many people on the property, and I can sell way more than I have room for. So that instructor's taking a spot that a student would have. So it's a double loss if I don't charge them. So you have to make decisions based on that. I think that the best advice I can give you on running good events is find events like the one you want to run and go there as a paid student and ask yourself questions like, do I feel I got my money's worth? Would I go back to this the next time again? And if you say, well, I got my money's worth, but I wouldn't go back again, really re-examine the first question again. What? And then be very critical. Even if they did a good job, this doesn't mean tell them they suck. You sit down and you write down, maybe even take notes while you're there so you don't forget, everything you didn't like. Everything you didn't like about that event. The way the instructors handled it, uh, whether or not they hung out, um, the class size, whatever it is. And then when you design your event, you design out the flaws. Here's a couple examples. I went into, I didn't pay, but I had a lot of you guys that showed up to the Sepp Holzer event in Montana. I was able to come at no cost because I, I brought a lot of people in. But I was sitting there thinking if I paid for this, I would be pissed. Because the guy was just a dick to people. He never hung out with people. He never took time to be with people. He wouldn't answer questions directly. There was, there was like lunch you had to pay extra for, and it wasn't very good. Um, the, the, there was just a lot of things about it that I'm like, that's not how I would do it. That's not how I would handle it. And I, I've been to other events where there was things like, you know, bring your own plate and spoon and fork and knife. And a lot of really good permaculture teachers do that because it's, it's minimalism, you know, and you know, you'll clean your own shit up if you bring it. But I was thinking, you know what? If I, 750 bucks to go to this class for four days. And, and I got to take up luggage space with, 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 with utensils? Why? Now, if I was going for, for 50 bucks, I might understand it. But, you know, I'm part with 500, 700, 1,000 bucks. I shouldn't have to carry my own freaking silverware. Even if I don't mind doing it, I, I shouldn't have to. It's a principal thing. It starts to bother people. Another, this is the same one. An email goes out like a week before this event, and it says, If you're a coffee drinker, please bring coffee with you to share. What? And then it was like, please make sure it's fair trade and blah, 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 and organic and blah. So some people, well, some people can bring their own damn coffee if I'm bringing mine. I'm thinking, this event has like 25 students in it. How much freaking coffee do you need for 25 people? 
And then I sit down, and until one day I'm happy because I got broccoli, and it looks like broccoli and chicken. And I'm all happy, and everybody's looking at me like I'm an idiot because they know me, and I'm a meat eater. And it wasn't chicken, it was freaking tofu. I think, you got to be shitting me, 750 bucks for broccoli and tofu? So I thought, I want my meals to be something that when you come, you feel the food was worth at least half the price. So I built my events based on the flaws in other events. And then developing a system over time, that's important too. Like We have a staff now, and unless one of them can't come, we don't hire anybody else. They've all been here multiple times. They all know their jobs cold. That makes everything easier. So if you want to go into this as, as part of your business strategy, understand you're not going to get rich. I mean, look at look at, look at uh, Diego. Diego did Permaculture Voices 1, 2, and 3. I think he made some money on 1. I think he lost his ass on 2. And I think he broke even on 3 by scaling it down. He scaled it down to a point where I don't think it just had the excitement anymore. He had less instructors but teaching really long classes, and I thought they were too long. You know, and I think he was trying to adapt to what he what he had, and then he said, "I'm not doing this anymore." Now, if you went to the first one of Permaculture Voices, my God, it was it was stacked, and there was amazing people there. But all those amazing people that came as speakers, most of them took a lot of money to show up. There was very few people that took very little. Basically, I I, I took airfare and a hotel room. That's what I took. Airfare and a hotel because I needed to at least pay my expenses while I was out there for, for what I could bring in. But mo most of the bigger names took a lot. So I don't want to poo-poo anybody's idea, and I think there's a lot of room for events. But what I would actually say is you might want to start smaller and locally And do like you know like like a fifty dollar one day event with you know so, you know and, and get your get your feet under you. Um, the first one we did here, I did almost all the teaching myself, and that was good because I didn't have to pay anybody to come. And I think we only charged three hundred fifty bucks for it because we had never done one. I didn't know if we were going to screw it up, and I said flat out, "We'll mess things up." Please understand that right out of the gate. And I had people telling me at the end of it. You guys didn't mess anything up. This was fantastic. I'd love to come back. And my thought was, I'm glad you said that, but I've got ten ways right now we can improve this. And I can't tell you how I would improve it. You're going to have to get in the game, so to speak, get behind the plate, get up to bat, swing and miss, swing and foul tip, and adjust and, 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 and figure this out if it's something you want to do. But don't think you're going you're gonna to make a bunch of money on it because you're just not. It just It's not going to happen. There's a, a, a point of you know total numbers of people that you need to make a lot of profit and there's a balance tip point where you can keep that event to like 50 charge a good premium for it or then you got to go into like you know like a, a trade show environment and sell 20,000 tickets at 10 bucks a piece and you got to sell your you know get sell space to booth space and all to make some money and, and I know a lot of people doing that they look successful they're not making much money they're not making much money so um Those are my thoughts and how, how our thought press process went with just making sure every student was happy. One more question and we'll wrap for the day. Can vermicomposting bin be run directly under my quail? I've been building my first quail cage and I'm at the point of designing my droppings collection. I've also been considering starting a vermicompost system. I was wondering if I can just collect the quail droppings directly into or onto my vermicompost setup. My concern is the bin may get too dirty due to open top or my quail droppings may stink due to too much moisture. 
would I just be better off collecting on a tray and transferring to regular compost pile? FYI, I'm in North Houston area. Thanks for all the great info you provide. I, you have no idea how much I have helped my family, how much you have helped my family over the years. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, Chris. Uh, you definitely can. Um, I'd be a little more afraid about it becoming too dry than too wet. And I really wouldn't worry about it becoming too dirty because the, the, the worms will expand their population to consume as much shit as you give them, to be blunt. So there would be a good way to do that. What I would do, and I've not built a system like this yet, so I can only give you so much advice. So what I would do is I would defer. There's a lot of people out there that do this with rabbit droppings already. They put a composting bin right under a rabbit cage. And I would go look at the way they set it up, and whatever they've done will probably work. My thought would be to make your collection bins deep. Uh, that will let it hold moisture and less wick away, because if the worms dry out, they're dead as, dead as all get out. Um, but... I, I, I kind of feel like you'd be better off with a traditional vermicomposting bin. And here's why. If you're going to have multiple quail cages, then you're going to have to have multiple bins. And one bin would probably do it all for you. It would centralize it and make it easier. And you don't have to dump your, your waste collection pans daily. You can do that like every three to four or five days. Um, and if you're using wood chips or something like that, then they're going in with it and you're making really great compost. So I think there's a big case for that. Uh, the other thing. You're in, you're in North Houston. You have the same problem I do, and in the whole state of Texas, fire ant hell. So you're gonna have to find some way to keep fire ants out of your worm bins. Plain and simple, and, and they are going to be a pain in the ass to quell. So having one place that you have to focus on that, it might be a really great idea. Here's an idea. Until we came up, we do ours in our uh, quail aviary now, where the quail are running around on the ground all the time. And not so many fire ants in there because they get pecked and eaten, right? And then we have basically grow beds, and we have our worms in the grow beds, and we compost right into the grow beds. And we're not doing quail waste because the quail are wasting on the ground and wood chips are building up, and every so often material comes out of that aviary and it goes elsewhere, okay? So we're, we're taking a little bit different. So they, they can't get up there because when they start coming in, they get eaten. And if a whole hive, of a, you know, a bed of ants invaded, they could overwhelm the quail and probably eat them all, but they don't try to do that. So they never find the food. So nobody ever goes back and goes, I found it, guys, it's here. And then a little line of uh, militant ants never start coming in to get it. So uh, another way I had come up with <clears throat> is to take a tree and get four pieces of all thread and put them through the bottom of a stock tank with bolts on them and hang it and suspend it from a tree. And, and sure, they could go up the tree and down and around, but they probably wouldn't. And then that would be pretty easy to put some tangle foot or something up on the all thread and, and, and keep that down. Because the first one I ever built, I put it on some cinder blocks, I put a little thing under it to catch worm tea, it was a thing of beauty for a week, and the ants went in and killed every single worm, and then built a house in it. Um, so... I'm going to advise you to think very carefully about your fire ant solution, and that might be a, a bigger reason to not put it under your quail uh, than any other reason. But if you want to do it, look at what the rabbit people do, because it's something very, very common with rabbits, though I don't know if it's common in North Houston in the middle of fire ant hellhole. Uh, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I want to make an announcement. Uh, I was on the Vin Armani show today. That's part of why the show's going out. It's like 4 o'clock right now when I'm talking. So show probably won't go out till 5 by the time I get it on the air today. And, and that's why I had a, a sound check with him about... 
think uh, 11 a.m. and then I had an interview from I think my time about one through two. And uh, it was streamed live on Facebook. I'll have a link to the Vin Armani show. I think the even though it's streamed live on Facebook, the video's up on Facebook now. I'll have a link to that. And I don't know that he's updated his his podcast feed with the audio version of it, but it'll be out soon. Anyway, I think he's like in like his 18th episode or something. He's doing a show weekly. He's very good. He's doing really cool stuff. I, I was really excited to be on his show. Um, just just an outstanding job that he's doing, and uh, really big into the voluntarist world. Um, absolutely big into that world, and just joneses for stuff on self-sufficiency and self-reliance. I don't think it'll be the last time that I'm on Vin's show. Again, it's the Vin Armani Show, V-I-N-A-R-M-A-N-I. And again, I'll have links to all his stuff in the show notes too. So if you want to check that out, uh, you, you might really enjoy it. I think we had some really good synergy, and I, I can see maybe someday having Vin on our show to talk about what is his goals for his. I'd like to ask him, like, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to teach people? Things like that. Big on entrepreneurship and and, and stuff like that. We talked about permaculture. We talked about preparedness. We talked about entrepreneurship. It was it was one of the most pleasant interviews I've ever uh, uh, given in my life. I've been on the you know on the on the guest side of. Absolutely fantastic work that Vin's doing in the Vin Armani show. Check it out. And if you like this show and you want to support us, you know how to do that. Join the member support brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on dun, 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 members right up at the top. You'll see a list of all the companies I get you discounts to. And remember, the more members I have, the more discounts I can get because well, people kind of care about that stuff. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, <clears throat> and first responders, all of you qualify for a discount. Just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. It'll save you money on a product that's already a great deal. And remember, that's not just active duty or retired. Active duty, prior service, retired in any of those professions. Uh, I give you that discount to thank you for your service at home and or abroad. And remember, even if you don't get the discount, 50 bucks a year comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. I think this show delivers you know, about two dimes worth of value on a regular basis. I, I don't think there's too many days we don't live up to that. So it's a voluntary thing. It's just a way to support us. But again, it's a, it's, it's a good way to support us, and we do give you a value back for it. Then the other way to support us, and it's just like stupid simple. Uh, it's through something called T-SPAS. If you're new to the show today, what the hell is T-SPAS? Well, you go to T-S-P-A-Z, T-SPAS.com, and it goes to this page. And then there's a link to go to Amazon. You click that link and you go to Amazon. You buy the stuff on Amazon that you were going to buy anyway. And then you know what happens? You get your stuff. You don't spend any more money. You bought through our affiliate link, and we make some money off of what you bought. Could be a buck. Could be 50 cents. Could be $10. But... Whatever it is, it didn't really take anything extra for you to do to support us. And it's really become a, a, a great revenue source for us at TSP. The dogs are going crazy again anyway. I don't know if you can hear them or not through the door, but they are. Anyway, uh, T-Spass today, we have our featured item of the day, is Davidson's Gunpowder Green Tea. Gunpowder Green Tea. And what is Gunpowder Green Tea? Well, it doesn't smell like cordite. You know, it's not from Hodgson Powder Company, and you can't put it in your 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 4570 and make your 300 grain jacket at hollow point go downrange at 1800 feet per second. It's just green tea. 
They call it gunpowder because it kind of looks like old gunpowder, like black powder, little pebbles. And that's because the, the tea leaves are rolled into like these little pellet pebble shapes. And what that does is because it's not all just kind of out there loose, it doesn't get broken up. And good tea, the leaves stay together. So it's just a great form of tea. And it's not unique to Davidson's. It's a, it's a common thing. It's a Chinese uh, thing that originated, oh, God, back in the uh, Tang Dynasty between 618 and 907. Uh, that, that time frame is when this type of tea came around. And they do it both in black teas and green teas. This is a particularly a green tea. I picked this one because it's a really good deal. I think it's like 12 bucks for a pound. It's on Prime, so it comes with free two-day shipping. And it is, yes, dun, 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 100% organic. 100% organic, so no pesticides, no nastiness. I think that's really important in tea. Because you're steeping tea usually in hot water, you're extracting from it. If it's got herbicides and pesticides in it, you're you're literally making a a tincture of that shit to, to to drink, a concentrate, right? So I'm big on that. Now I don't drink a lot of straight green tea. I really don't. I mean, this is a great green tea. It makes a this makes a fantastic iced tea. But I'm an herbal guy that likes to add green tea to my herbal teas. So I'll give you a a great tea recipe that goes with this today. Three parts peppermint. Three parts lemongrass, two parts orange peel, and two parts green tea. That makes a great sipping tea, and it makes a great iced tea. Now, you want to make an awesome iced green tea? You go 50% green tea and 50% peppermint. And, and I, like, it's winter, but it's going to be summer tomorrow here in Texas. Yeah, it was just, it was, it was freaking 12 degrees Saturday morning when I got up. 12 degrees, frozen stuff everywhere, a couple pipes broke, my aquaponics system's all jacked up, still got stuff out there to fix, Ugh. 12 degrees, it's going to be 76 degrees tomorrow on Tuesday, right, so maybe I'll have some, but as it gets warmer, and it will, you know, winter comes and then it goes, and it goes into spring, mint iced green tea. It's so cooling and so refreshing. It gives you a little bit of that caffeine kick. That's why I like it. Again, 100% organic. With that, let's move on to uh, the song of the day. The song of the day I have for you is one that, when I tell you what it is, you might think, I don't know that song. But when you hear it, especially when part of you like, oh, I've heard that song before. Unless you're like, I don't know, 18 or something. You might not have heard it. It's by Billy Joel, and it's called Move It Out. And, you know, I talked today about, you know, working hard in your business and, 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 and dedicating yourself and being good at what you do uh, if you want to become wealthy, if you want to build wealth. And, and I realize as I'm, I'm saying that, like, you can, you can take that too far as well. This song was sent to me by a listener, and what I, what I really love about this song is it's basically saying, if all I get out of working myself to death If all I get out of moving to Hackensack uh, from where I'm at is a house that's overpriced, and that's all I get for my money, but people think I'm successful. You know, if I, if I trade in my old car for a Cadillac, ack, 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 right? That's going to be the part where you're going to be like, I knew, okay, yeah, I heard that song, right? If, if, I used to get the Cadillac, but the whole point of the Cadillac is so I can drive around it and people can see me in it. Then I'm moving out. I don't want it. And it, it, it's, it, it really is a thing, especially when this song came out. Uh, in that the area that Billy Joel's from, back in 1977 was when this song came out. That East Jersey, New York City, Bronx, Queens, that whole area, there, there was a, a, a real mentality of, you know, you got to move up, you got to move up. And people were taking two and three jobs to do it. Not because they were trying to survive, but because they wanted the Cadillac, they wanted to Cadillac, they wanted a place in Hackensack. If you think about some of Joel's other songs, like Allentown, 
spent their weekends at the Jersey Shore, right? This is this is very much a geo, geo geocentric song based on what he experienced, and it basically disgusted him that people would 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 eat away the best years of their life with nothing but work, and not only do that, but they'd have very little to show for it. Again, he wasn't talking about the people that were doing this 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 level of work ethic to survive, but actually people that could have a decent life, right? If you think about, the, there's another line in this song, Sergeant O'Leary, right? A lot of ethnic names in this because there's a lot of, you know, Mama Leon, Anthony, Sergeant o, uh, uh, O'Leary. Uh, these were names, you know, Irish and Italian and stuff. A lot of that influence in this area. It's, it's not meant in a bad way. It's just that's the you, you write you write reality based on reality, not fiction. Uh, and there's a line: that Sergeant O'Leary walked the beat day to day. But he was a bartender at night. I don't remember the exact line, but but basically the guy's a cop during the daytime. He's he's tending bar at, at night. Well, if you work as a cop in New York, you might not be rich, but you make a decent salary. You don't have to take a job as a bartender to get by. But if you want that Cadillac, act, 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 you got to do it. And I think what Joel was trying to say in this song is working hard, putting in long hours, doing all those things for the purpose of of, of living your dream is worth doing. But for materialism, so that other people will look at you and call you successful, is a waste. It's a waste. You should live the life that you were born to live. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Get for your money And if that's what you have
Moving out of 